Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm here with Duncan Van Dusen, who is the founder and CEO of Catch Global Foundation. Uh, we're here to discuss a recent book he published about teaching health in schools, uh, aptly titled, When Are We Going to Teach Health? Um, I'm going to link to the book in the notes. And uh, a big bonus for me was that, uh, Duncan, you published this as an audiobook as well, uh, which was on Audible, which is my number one source of listening to books. So uh, really appreciate you doing that. And uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Risto. It's great to uh, it's great to be here. And I want to start by just acknowledging that, uh, you know, the, the work that we do is social work. Uh, health is a social thing. And therefore, we need to do it collaboratively and as a team. In fact, our, 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 uh, our, our, our name, Catch, the first word of Catch is coordinated. Mm-hmm. So I really want to thank and recognize all of my catch teammates, all of our catch partners and communities, uh, which number 15,000 schools now. Uh, and in particular, the six that worked with me on doing a case study in this book, everybody uh, has a hand in this work. Awesome. And so can you give me a big picture idea of what the book is about? What do you cover? Yeah, the, the purpose of the book is, is really a combination of a, if you will, big idea book and also a how to manual that describes the why, what, and how of prioritizing health in K-12 schools. Uh, when we talk about health, we're talking about sort of classically considered health education, but also physical education and social and emotional learning and the creation of uh, a climate of health and wellness within the schools. The audience for the book is, is educators, which uh, some of whom you, know, you think of obviously as educators like classroom teachers, uh, but, but there are many, many more, more educators than just classroom teachers, right, that are in the K-12 ecosystem. So there's, there's principals, uh, there's other school staff, there are district staff, there are lawmakers, there are state agencies of health, there are state agencies of education, and of course there are parents, uh, and even grandparents of K-12 students. So when you figure all those people in, there are about 50 million people in the United States who could consider themselves educators, uh, plus a K-12 educator specifically, plus there's about 50 million K-12 kids. So that's 100 million, and, and in a country of 300 million people, a third of all Americans are essentially either uh, a K-12 student or a K-12 educator. Mm-hmm. So, and this book uh, ideally is for all of them. Yeah, yeah, and so you start the book off right in the beginning saying you're not going to cover everything. And so when I read that, I was I was surprised, but also it's a condensed book. And um, so can you explain why you skip over important topics like mental health, sexual education, violence prevention, things like that in your book? Yeah, well, that, that's a great question. Thank you for bringing it up. And, and, I, and, and I get asked that a lot. We talk about that a lot. So let me give you a multi, multi-factor answer. First of all, let me say that with regard to mental health specifically, I do talk about, and it is very important, uh, social emotional learning, which is essentially tier one, you know, mental health education. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when people talk about mental health, what they're really talking about is mental health care, interventions, counseling, treatment, which are tiers two and tier three. And the reason I don't address tiers two and tier three is because those are secondary preventative or, or curative. And the entire book is about primary prevention. 
Uh, so in that vein, I only talk about the primary prevention component, which is essentially what most people consider social-emotional learning. So I do cover that. I don't cover, as you say, uh, other topics like uh, specifically sexual education and, and, and also violence prevention. And there's really, there's really three reasons for that. The first reason is a matter of credibility. Patch has historically not offered programs in that area, and I don't consider myself at all uh, knowledgeable, certainly not an expert in those uh, categories. And, and I didn't feel like I had anything to add to the discussion mm -hmm. beyond the general principles of health education that I talked about. I didn't feel like I had anything specific to add to those domains. Catch uh, actually is getting into the safety uh, and violence prevention area. So hopefully in the second edition, uh, I, I will feel like I have something to add there. So the first point is, is a matter of credibility. The second reason that I didn't go there is essentially a matter of, of pragmatism. And look, these, these, especially sex education, is a controversial topic. And what I wanted to do with this book is to start with areas where I felt there was more common agreement. There's so many things we can do about physical education. There's so many things we can do about nutrition education, about substance misuse, where there's very broad-based population-wide agreement uh, that this is of, of what to do and how to do it. And so I wanted to start there uh, rather than courting controversy by, by going to an area where there's vast, vast, you know, disagreement. And, and, and I don't think it's arguable that, that sex ed is more controversial than the other topics. Uh, whether or not I should treat it, and if you go to Amazon and look at my reviews, you know, you'll see that the, uh, the, what Amazon uh, says is the most useful critical review, which is a three-star review and a really, you know, not that bad. Uh, and, and the title of the review is Good But Disappointing. And the reviewer says, essentially, it's great that you're covering many of these topics, but I wish you had covered the uh, more controversial ones mm -hmm. like sex education, too. Yeah. And, that, it's, and it's a fair question and a fair criticism. And the reason, uh, the, the reason I decided to go there, again, is credibility, pragmatism. And then the third reason is, uh, and this, I think, is arguable, is uh, ethics. Um, Look, our work, we, we don't go in and educate kids. Okay? What we do is we provide tools, training, technical assistance, curricula, et cetera, for communities to do that. And as you probably noticed towards the end of the book, I talk a little bit about a framework for our work, which is at the intersection of science, you know, what's proven to work, mm -hmm. community demand, what's wanted by communities, yeah. and, you know, money slash resources, which is what, what can be, you know, sustainable financially and economically. Yeah. So we want to be at the intersection of those three things. And we do have a little bit of an ethical dilemma when we have a, something where there's science behind it, but there isn't community demand. Right. Should we be promoting it because it, we know that it works? Or should we say, look, these programs are community driven. And if the communities don't want it, then it's not our place. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, in Texas, where I'm based, there have been very long, very controversial topics, uh, conversations, excuse me, discussions about uh, sex ed. And what the legislature of the state of Texas decided was that each community, each school district, and there's 1,200 of them, would for itself decide if they were or were not offering sex ed. Wow. And then, if the community said, you know, they turned their key, so to speak, then each parent and caregiver could decide to opt in to that sex education for their child. So the reality of that is for the communities 
well, the communities that don't decide to do it, the parent caregiver has no option. Even the communities that do decide to do it, the parents still have to opt in, and there's some very, you know, a significant uh, pragmatic, practical hurdles to getting those permission forms and getting everyone to opt right. in. So the net effect of that is, of course, you know, uh, many, many uh, Texas K-12 kids are not getting sex ed. So that's rightly or wrongly, regardless of what the science says, that is the, com- the you know, democratic outcome mm-hmm. for, for those communities. And so, uh, again, from an ethical standpoint, we have to really consider how far should we go where we have science but no community demand. So for, for a combination of those three reasons, uh, I decided that at least in the first edition uh, of this book, I was better off really focusing on areas of common agreement, even if that meant some people were disappointed that um, I didn't uh, tackle controversial stuff uh, head on. Yeah. And I... And thank you for that explanation because it, to me it makes a lot of sense because a lot of the information that you have for a person who has a doctorate in health area or a master's degree in public health or something, you're not necessarily sharing some like like mind-blowing information. Like this is a really solid book that teaches a lot of people who don't know about health the reasoning behind it. And I now like it makes sense if you put in sex ed in there and it's controversial, then it gets a bad rap for that. And I think that, you know, there are places that people talk about sex ed in higher education and journals and different organizations that tackle that. And so your explanation makes a lot of sense to me of why, why you chose not to address that. And, uh, and thank you for sharing that about Texas. Cause I didn't know that that was, the common practice there that the entire state has decided that it's community-based that, and that's where the decision is made. Yeah, and we have this, you, you, what you say is right on, and, and we have just another example from Texas. Each des- district in Texas has a school health advisory committee, uh, which parents are welcome to. They're open to the community. And the experience of a lot of districts is the topic of sex ed takes up so much time and energy at those meetings that unfortunately, although it's an important topic, it, it, it consumes time from all these other topics which are important too. Yeah. And so I think, uh, like you say, there's some very basic principles with broad-based agreement. Uh, they're not that complex. Let's start there. Let's get these, uh, let's get going with the basics, yeah. uh, the easy stuff that we can have common agreement on. And, and you know, we'll get to the, <laughs> we'll get to the graduate seminar later. Yeah, and, and you're right too in that. Um... Like there, there's common agreement with a lot of people, but there's also K to 12 educators that know none of this, but they are tasked right. to teach health. They may have taken one right. health course, a 101 level course and passed the praxis that allowed them as generalist teachers to teach. Like we have in, in a lot of the school districts around me, um, generalist teachers are responsible for teaching health. Although universities like us, we uh, produce licensed health and physical educators at the elementary level, those health and PE teachers are not teaching health. They're integrating part of it, but its responsibility is on the, on the shoulders of the uh, generalist teachers and they do a lot. So there's a ton of stuff that they're working yep. on and it's, it's a lot and getting a small bit of information like this, I think is very helpful. But let me, let me transition to this you, you position schools as a place for public health. And so I'm wondering what's your opinion on, do you feel like it can happen or do you feel like it could 
possibly backfire like what physical education anchored their wagon to and said, we are public health. We are going to fix the obesity crisis through physical education. And it obviously hasn't happened. Like in the 2000s, there were a lot of policy articles that talked about the physical education is the pill not taken. We can fix everything with PE, but due to a variety of reasons, minute requirements, not having daily PE, not just simply it's an education class and not a moderate to vigorous physical activity course. Um, so where do you think health fits in there? Do you feel like they can actually be a, a place for public health to make a change? Well, first of all, it's a, it's a, it's a great point. And the short answer to can it backfire is yes. Uh, another option is it could just be ineffective, which I think is mm-hmm. to, to a large degree, as you, as you say, what happened. What I try to do in the book and what Catch tries to do is to reorient the message to talking about how school health can help educators in the short term with the job of teaching kids uh, rather than how school health can help the goals of public health in the long term. Mm-hmm. So think about exercise, for example, that you that you just raised. From a public health lens, exercise is important because it improves your weight control. It is a, a major preventative factor for essentially all non-communicable diseases. Everything from you know Alzheimer's to diabetes to obesity to cancer, it's all tied. And the only one that exercise may not affect is probably COPD. Everything else, you know, exercise is um, a moderating, you know, avoidance of, uh, opportunity to, re- to reduce your odds of getting those diseases and getting them sooner. And exercise also helps with uh, a lot of other things like bone health and muscle health and sleep and mood control and so on and so on. So, but talking about how exercise is going to help kids lead, long, lead longer and, and more productive lives in 30 years from now, simply it's not the goal of educators. So what we talk about is how exercise can help make you a more productive learner, not in 30 years, but in 30 minutes. That is the goal of educators. Mm-hmm. And I think we've been, frankly, you know, a, a lot more effective uh, with, you know, that pack of messaging in showing schools, we are, yes, we have a public health pedigree, but we're not really about public health on a day-to-day basis. We're about education on a day-to-day basis. And we want to show how uh, prioritizing health education, prioritizing a culture of wellness can help you do your job now. And by the way, there's quite a bit of evidence that's mounting uh, about the connections between all health, but specifically physical education, or I should say physical activity, let me be specific, the connections between physical activity and the learning process. Mm -hmm. Improves memory, improves concentration, improves standardized test scores, improves graduation rates, uh, has social-emotional benefits like I alluded to, such as mood control, uh, better sleep. All of those things are things that educators seek. Look, here's the proof. As a parent, hear this twice a year, every year. It's standardized testing week next week. Make sure your kiddos are getting some exercise and in the evening, get a healthy, you know, dinner and a healthy breakfast, get a good night's sleep. Why are they saying that? They're saying that because that's the recipe for academic success. Why are we only saying that one week a year? If that is actually the recipe for academic success, let's use it every week. Right. Yeah. So uh, I'm wondering if we get past, I mean, there's, 
not enough money, not enough time. Those are the arguments that we hear all the time about why we're not doing this. Uh, you talk about in the book about structural and philosophical issues to not teaching health. Can you expand on in that part? Yeah, so the structural issues are essentially the issues of who, how, when, and where. Things like, um, you, you, you mentioned, you know, who should be teaching health, mm-hmm. right? Do we have enough health educators? Are they trained to actually teach health? Teach health? Because it's, it's a different kind of topic than a traditional knowledge-based topic like English or history or math. Uh, how do we test it? Uh, when do we schedule it? You know, where do we teach it? I mean, where, where do we teach physical uh, education is a big issue mm-hmm. in a lot of schools around the country. I mean, yeah. we work in urban schools where the, the quote-unquote gym literally shares space with the cafeteria or space is very constricted. We work in schools in South Texas that don't even have a gym. PE is outdoors yeah. all year round, which means that you're alternating between freezing days in the winter and 100 degree days in, in the spring and, and fall. So there, there are a lot of structural issues around personnel, facilities, time, et cetera, that, that, that where schools aren't really necessarily set up to optimally teach health or test it or, you know, have the accountability around it. I mean, especially when it's not on state standardized tests, it's not on uh, national standardized tests, et cetera. So the, the structure that we put schools in, physical and, and I mean, literal and, and metaphorical structure, is, does not match up with the best practices for teaching. So there's a whole host of issues there. On the philosophical side, those are issues of essentially why and what. So first and foremost, should schools teach health? Is that a goal of the educational system? And if so, what topics and mm-hmm. how much? So we talked earlier about you know sex education. Is that fundamentally something that schools should teach? Uh, that's a that's a that's a big question mark for a lot of people. Um, there's also a a I think a, a little bit of a when uh, conversation in philosophical, which is when during the K-12 sequence should health be taught. You know, a lot of health teaching is really focused on risk, uh, risk behavior avoidance, so the, the kind of, the, if you will, negative behavior. So in a lot of places in the country, if health is taught at all, it's taught in high school, maybe middle school, and it's focused on substance misuse. Yeah, yeah. Right? So an avoidance behavior. Mm-hmm. But by the time kids get to that age, a lot of their attitudes and beliefs, the die is already cast. Yeah. Moreover, when they get to that age, at least my teenagers, they're not listening to adults. Yeah. They're listening to their peers. Mm-hmm. So it becomes very, very difficult to start teaching health and probably not that effective uh, at that age. Whereas if we looked at teaching proactive behaviors, like choosing healthy foods, exercising, developing those attitudes and beliefs earlier in the sequence, when kids really are modeling on adults and other, you know, authority figures, parents, church leaders, um, coaches, etc., then we might be able to be more effective. So that's a, that's a philosophical question about, you know, where do where do schools fit in, and when and, and when do they fit in there, and what topics should they be teaching? So I think each of those it's important to see those uh, structural domains of the kind of X's and O's within schools separately from the philosophical issues of what we're trying to accomplish in the first place and why. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. And so you also talked about in the book that health is a social justice issue. Can you can you explain why teaching health is a social justice issue? Well, I think it's a social justice issue because of a, a principle known as, as health disparities and or social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, health status is part of a package which travels with educational status and it travels with economic status. In other words, when your economic status is lower, communities who have lower health economic status tend to have lower health status as well. And they have lower educational status too, which means they they simply may not know. I mean, like you said earlier, a lot of these things are, are the basic and, and many, many people know them, but many people do not. Many educators do not, uh, teachers do not, many parents do not. So it is, when we're talking about preventing disease and simple low cost things that can be done to improve health status, like nutrition, like exercise, like substance, uh, you know, avoidance. Those, if we aren't doing those things, we aren't teaching those things. We are disproportionately penalizing lower income people. Yeah. And that's an issue of social justice. Absolutely. We should not have a society where we are, it's bad enough that we have a society where there are economic, uh, inequalities. And I think to some degree, you know, in the United States, we have a kind of capitalist compact. And I think we've, we've accepted there are economic disparities. We may or may not believe that we have uh, the right amount of economic disparities, but the Mm -hmm. fundamental idea that some people have, you know, more, more income and more money than others is, is that that's a, that that's the society that we've chosen. However, I don't think we ever made a conscious decision that we should have a society with health disparities certainly not health disparities to that extent, and certainly not ones that are preventable. I mean, if you choose you know, to smoke or whatever, then I mean, over the long term, yeah, you're gonna have a lower health status, probably. Um, but when it comes to kids, making sure that they have the knowledge, skills, and environment to pick the healthy behavior, that's, somebody that, that's something that everybody should get. Uh, so that's what, that's what I mean when, when I talk about it being an issue. So yeah. And it shouldn't be what zip code did your parents move into or what zip code you were born in to have XYZ life outcomes. Exactly. And then the schools are so important. Public schools are so important to help remediate those uh, educational disparities and those health disparities. And there's a, a, a case study in the book that talks about a community in Brownsville, Texas, all the way down the way, way southern tip, literally a thousand yards. You can see Mexico, Ortiz Elementary, and how the if, if you look at the data, there's a very high correlation between essentially the income of the community and the performance of the school and also the health mm-hmm. of What Ortiz was able to do is they had a, a 4.0 GPA as measured by the Texas Education Agency, which is our State Department of Education. They had a 4.0 GPA in school performance. And they were one of only 6% of schools in the state that had that. And they were only at half a percent of the schools that was low income and had the 4.0. Mm-hmm. Half a percent. So if there's, let's say, 6,000 schools in Texas, they're at 30 schools. They're one of essentially the 30 best schools in Texas. And I asked the principal, why? How did you do that? She said, health. I'm sure there were many other factors too. Right. But if you've got a principal in that kind of challenging environment, that's delivering that kind of results. And they're saying health is part of how we do it. Mm-hmm. 
and you're a principal that's struggling to deliver good results. Are you willing to ignore that? I mean, isn't that something that's at least worth trying with all the evidence of both both scientific and anecdotal behind it? Shouldn't shouldn't we at least try? I mean, I know if I was, I'm biased, of course, but if I was running a school, after all I've seen, it'd be really hard for me to ignore. I should maybe try and see whether health can help me do my job. Yeah. And so one of the one of the questions that when I was listening to the book that came up that I was thinking about with this specific case study was that principle is a good leader. That principle is a strong leader. They buy into the health concept. They have people who are on board. So could Ortiz Elementary be at that half percent with another general principle leader? Would they be at the top half percent or you know, whatever percent among schools with that 4.0 read, rating if that, te- if that principal goes to a school in Austin or Houston? That principal is the change maker, right? A lot of the times that could then bring the Austin school or the Houston school up to that rating. But what happens when she leaves? That's, that's the thing yeah. that like that digs at me is you have these amazing people who are leaders and passionate and they build a team and then the person leaves. So how do we stop that yeah. from, I don't know, it's not a brain drain, but it's the similar idea behind that. Well, yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. And I think, you know, uh, Principal Garza is, is exceptional and uh, she maybe could turn any school in the country into the top half percent and, and any school that she left might go down. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so f- fair point. But here's, here's, here's how we would approach that, is, is to say uh, that health and wellness should be thought of as uh, something that's part of the school attitude, the school culture. And as we do our work, we encourage all schools to develop a wellness team. As I said at the beginning, health is social. It, it is not just a matter of knowledge transmission where you say, oh, we have a great math teacher. Okay. Health can't be, you know, Joe's job or Linda's job. Joe or Linda can be the leader, but the best thing that Joe or Linda can do, and we tell this to our, our what we call catch champions, which is our health wellness team leaders, is don't be a hero. Don't do it all yourself. You're actually doing your, your school a big disservice if you're trying to be Superman or Superwoman. Be a coach. What do coaches do? Recruit. Organize. Develop the playbook. Develop the skills, coach, get the team to win, get the team to feel good about it. And, and great teams can go on winning even when the coach changes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we really try to do is help institutionalize the attitudes, beliefs, practices, curricula, et cetera, behind health and wellness in the school. And I'm very flattered actually when we, so when we started Catch Global Foundation eight years ago, Catch the program had been going on for 33 years, 26 years before that. And we did a census and we asked schools, how long have you been using catch? And we got a lot of responses and it was incredibly flattering and very eye-opening for me that said, I don't know. Catch was, catch is here when I got here. Yeah. That's the idea, yeah. right? We want everyone to see the work as something they may start it, but it needs to go on without them. Don't be Superman. 
get the team working and get the team functioning without you. Frankly, it's something that I think about every day as the leader of an organization. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be indispensable to catch. I want catch to function as well as possible yeah. without me, which takes you know a certain amount of, of discipline and humility mm-hmm. uh, because I also want to have a job there at least for yeah. a while. Yeah. Uh, but I have to try to get the team you know working uh, without me. Um, because the most important thing, and I want every one of our leaders and every one of our people, think about who will do your work after you're gone. <clears throat> Let's make sure, <clears throat> now I'm losing my voice. <clears throat> Let's make sure that the work is institutionalized and sustainable to try to combat what you just talked about. Yeah, absolutely. So you talked about a research summary uh, out of Seattle in the book as well. and. In it, you talked about why fear tactics don't work for kids when you're only teaching them half concepts. Can you elaborate on that? So, I uh, I guess I'm gl- I could say I'm glad for one reason that we rescheduled this podcast because uh, just this week in the Economist, there's an article which talks about how also in Texas. Um, there's some research that shows that highway billboards that we have that tally traffic fatalities mm-hmm. are actually counterproductive. And there's some studies that show that in the uh, places and at the times that those billboards are displayed, traffic fatalities are worse, not better. Hmm. Okay? Which is, I understand, counterintuitive, but yeah. if it were common sense, we wouldn't even need to talk about it because everyone already knows it. And it is counterintuitive. Fear arousal seems to have the effect of helping, encouraging people to remember the sensation of the fear and not necessarily the conclusion. That's the same reason coaches say to football players, don't say to your football players, don't fumble. Because what the football player hears is fumble. (laughs) Say, hang on to the ball. Mm -hmm. That's just how our minds work. So, So the other reason for that is that many of the uh, uh, demonst- health demonstrations, you know, fiery car crashes from, from drunk driving or, you know, grotesque uh, tooth decay from vaping and stuff like that. These are extreme cases. So in the mind of, let's say, your teenager, who's typically the target for this type of thing, that's uh, <laughs> ludicrous. That's, that's not going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I've never... All of my friends vape every day. I know a guy that, you know, whatever. Yeah. And then he doesn't have teeth like that. It's never going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. So it, what, what tends to sometimes happen with these fear arousal techniques is uh, not only do you have this kind of sen- this, the sensation of this thing happening without necessarily the conclusion of how to avoid it, but you have this kind of far-fetched message that, that doesn't really relate to it because it's, it's, it's just it's, it's so unlikely it, it almost becomes, it, it becomes a joke. So that's the case that a lot of research makes, including this article in The Economist, makes against fear arousal. Now, I do point out in the book, and it is true, that there is some literature in favor of fear arousal. And so, for example, in Australia, uh, they use cigarette uh, packaging that has graphic images of what can happen to your lungs Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And there is also some literature that supports the effectiveness of that. So... My conclusion really is it has to be done just right. And therefore, let's leave that to health communications professionals that are doing, you know, with a lot of expertise that are doing, you know, large scale mass media campaigns that 
can work, although apparently, you know, the Texas Department of Health does not have, you know, uh, or Department of uh, uh, Transportation does not have, you know, <laughs> those um, experts on its team designing its health communications because, as, as the economist noted, it's backfired. So it has to be handled with tremendous care. This is not something for your average school administration to dream up and, and do uh, because it, it, it really can back. Yeah. And I, and I think what you said there about the Australian uh, like cigarette packaging, and I know that this happens in other countries as well. And and I think it's partnered with the fact that when you go in, you can't find cigarettes anywhere. Right. They're all behind boxes. There's no like this is where you find cigarettes or you like. And I think the U.S. has also like taken those um from behind the counter to somewhere else that you have to go and you have to know to ask for them. But also that's consistent messaging. Every time you buy a pack of cigarettes or chew or something, right. you have that like picture of that lung or that picture of that person who's suffering. And if you see that every day of your life for 10 years and you're like, okay, like I, I get the point, maybe I should think about this versus what you would do in health like and i remember we had this um in high school we had the police department came in and did that dramatic reenactment as the school assembly of the car crash of a drunk driver and like that's one day out of the entire school year out of that entire i think it's like once every two years that they do it so you know it it's such a snapshot and, and I can totally yeah. see, like, when you look at it and you're like, oh, that's not going to happen to me. Or some people just look away and they're like, oh, that's gross. I'm not going to watch. I'm going to close my eyes. Right. And then block right. off any of the information that could have been taught during that time. Yeah, that's right. And, and it's, it, it, you, you, what you're saying is, is, is another very important point, which is we can't relegate health education to these kind of one-time assemblies mm-hmm. or occasional assemblies. Yeah. What works in health education is building skills, which is an interactive process. There's, there's no skill building going on in that assembly. Yeah. Skill building is let's talk about your goals, your ambitions. Now, how could using alcohol support or detract from you achieving your ambitions in life? Let's talk about refusal skills. Let's practice. Okay, Riso, you you pretend you're trying to get me to try something. I'm going to pretend like I don't want to do it, and we'll see, you know, how it goes, and then we'll switch roles. Mm-hmm. That's skill building, yeah. rehearsal skills. That's what health education should be doing. Not, you know, not saying, oh, look, we're doing lots. We had a giant health assembly where we brought the police department in. It, it becomes, you know, a, a kind of comforting fallback position for administrators to feel like they're doing something, yeah. but the science behind it is really not very compelling. Yeah. It's direct instruction. It's lecture. It's no interaction. It's no checking for understanding. There's no debrief afterwards right. of having exactly. that conversation. So right. it's not good all pedagogy. The, all the basic X's and O's about pedagogy are yeah. not being covered there. So you talked about athletic coaches teaching health, and this was something that I was surprised of because I've never heard of this. And I'm not sure if you mean that PE teachers who are also coaches are teaching health, or are there just coaches who are asked to cover in to teach this this uh, aspect? In some parts of the co- well, for, first of all, let me start by saying, as, as as I'm sure many of your listeners know, but I think it bears repeating, 25% of schools in the United States do not have a credential PE educator at all. 
Mm-hmm. That includes the entire state of California, which is about 10 plus 10 to 12 percent of the country, and and many other places. At, at the and elementary portion, level in California, right? Right at yeah. the elementary. Level. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's actually technically elementary and middle K eight. Of course, many schools don't offer PE in high school, so it's 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 moved. But but roughly speaking, 25 percent have no credentialed PE person. So that's that's the first element. Um, coaches, it, it, when, when, when PE is taught in high school and health are taught in high school, it, it is often taught by people whose primary responsibility, primary training, primary incentive structure is being a coach. Um, so when you say PE teachers who also coach, another way of formulating that is coaches who also teach PE. Uh, I think the question really becomes, what is that person being hired for? Mm-hmm. And what is that person being measured for? And one of the questions I ask in the book is, has a coach with a winning record ever been dismissed for poor teaching of health? Nope. <laughs> obviously, obviously a rhetorical question. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I think that we can all consider what the answer to that might be. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I see that. And, and as a teacher educator, it hurts me to admit that, yes, there are football coaches that get a job teaching PE that are poor teachers, but they're really good football coaches. And they roll out the ball for four periods a day, have a planning period, and then coach. And most of the time that they're rolling out the ball, they're working on, I don't know, watching a video on their iPhone of uh, of last, uh, last week's game or something like that. So uh, it is disappointing. Uh, and I know that there's... There's advocacy out there, but it also needs to, you know, principals need to look at the hiring practices of what is the purpose? What is, if you're in a school, is education and the extracurricular sports are bonus. And if you're winning, great, but the hiring practices shouldn't be made based on that. And um, I liked, yeah, you know, when I was teaching at uh, Cal State Fullerton, we had interviews to get into our program and one of the like you could be a decent candidate if you're a great candidate and you wanted to coach yes like you're gonna get in Uh, but if you're a borderline candidate and you come in and you answer when we say why do you want to be a PE teacher i want to coach football it's brought me so much in my life and i just want to give back to those other people i'm like well, then you, you should probably go coach football, but you're not going to be a PE teacher with a license out of our university because I know who right. you're going to be in the classroom. And right. then we ask, like, like we have people, I've, I've taught people who I've asked, why, why are you here? Like, well, I want to coach. Like, well, why are you teaching PE if you want to coach? Well, because it was the easiest way in. I'm just like... Right. We we need to have a serious conversation because you're you're not gonna stay in that profession. One, you're gonna do disservice to all these students. Like, why don't you go teach history? Like, go get a history degree and then coach. Do something else. Right. Like, don't don't come into. And that was, I've been at universities where there is no interview process to get into the major, so the disposition never gets checked. Right, California had. <laughs> a four-year degree and a one-year post-bac teaching credential program. So we interviewed into that before you got your license. But a lot of universities, 
you get in as a freshman, you declare your major as a PE major, you do well in your classes, you want to coach. There's no way to like, and we know through socialization research that there's not a lot you can do to change students' minds in a PEE program because we, we just don't have enough time. And the apprenticeship right. of op observation, the stuff that you do before in high school watching teachers, that's what you assume teaching is. So Yeah. No, you're making a really interesting point that I, I considered a lot of you know, what schools can do in terms of their own hiring, screening, training, uh, accountability. But you're right. There's an upstream issue in terms of uh, people shouldn't be ge even getting credentialed as mm -hmm. PE teachers yeah. if they don't have a devotion and understanding and the skills to do that. Yeah. Um, so, so a lot of it comes back to the, the, the big theme here, which is when are we going to make this a priority? Yeah. So I used the title, when are we going to teach it? When, when are we going to decide as, as, as a, as a, as a K-12 educational system, as educators, if you will, when are we going to decide that health is a priority and health is important. If we decide that it's a priority, we'll figure out how to make sure that the teachers have the right credentials. We'll figure out how to make sure that the teachers have the right training and so on and so on and so on. But until we decide that it's a priority, we're always going to be, and, and frankly, it's, it's offensive to PE teachers, the thought that anybody can, anybody can do this. You could be a great coach, you'll figure it out. You could be a great counselor. You'll, this is another thing that happens. If you're a counselor that's trained to do essentially the provision of a healthcare service, you know, one-on-one -on -one, uh, intervention with people who have substance misuse problems, behavioral problems, et cetera, and you're put in front of a classroom of kids teaching a preventative proactive behavior, you're not trained for that. That's not what right. counselors do. Mm -hmm. So the idea that anybody can just kind of stand up and teach PE, anybody can just stand up and teach health, that's offensive. It's a yeah. skill set unto itself. People devote their careers to it. They're trained for it. It's highly specialized. If we want to do it well, we can't just throw anybody at this problem. Yeah. I 100% agree. So let me, let me ask you this about uh, CATCH, your organization. Can you talk about the organization yeah. and the research that supports it? Yeah, sure. So CATCH exists not as a direct service organization. Like I mentioned earlier, we don't go into schools and teach. We certainly not, we don't teach students. We actually do go into school and teach teachers. Um, we exist to help build capacity among schools primarily. We also work with after-school programs and such, but primarily among you know, educational institutions to build their capacity to teach health and wellness effectively. Okay, so that includes providing curriculum that meets standards in PE, health, SEL, social emotional learning, it includes providing training, technical assistance, things like helping to build uh, wellness teams, enact policies that are conducive with health, building attitudes and cultures of health and wellness among your school. That's what CATCH exists to do, okay? So we're a community capacity building organization. The science behind CATCH, the, the, there's two main points that I'll mention here, and there's, there's a there's a stack of over a hundred peer reviewed, you know, research papers and a number of flattering things, you know, describing how CATCH is probably the, the best scaled up physical education program in the world. That's what the Lancet said. Um, the, two, the two main bodies of, of work are as follows. One is using the principles of social cognitive theory to build that culture of health. Okay? So understanding that health education, helping coach schools, health education is not a matter of knowledge transfer like we've talked about. It's a matter of, yes, knowledge is one ingredient. It's also a matter of skill building. 
It's a matter of role modeling. It's a matter of creating an environment, a physical environment, an informational environment, and a, a supportive home environment, all of those things to help kids want to make the healthy choice and to help kids sustain the healthy choice. It's not something you, like, when you're learning math, okay, I got it. I got it. I got it for good. I understand. I now understand this concept for the rest of my life. With health, you can understand something, but you have to do it. And it's hard to keep doing it when, you know, you're tired and sick and in a difficult place and, in a, you know, unsupported social environment and so on and so on. So we have to learn these skills and we have to practice these skills in all kinds of different conditions. Uh, and that is, we have a lot of evidence around how our kind of multifactual coordinated intervention, including all of those things which I described, helps create and sustain a culture uh, that's supportive of health. The second big body of evidence is around specifically moderate to vigorous physical activity in either PE or PA, depending on you know what your state has. So, and this is you know well accepted. It's not, it's not kind of a groundbreaking. It's well accepted totally by the scientific community that when it comes to kids. Anything less than moderate activity is darn near useless. You know, the guidelines for physical activity among kids only talk about how much moderate to vigorous physical activity you get. It, standing and watching your friends play kickball or, or you know, kind of slowly ambling around is, is, is pretty much useless. I mean, if you're an older uh, person, a little bit of, you know, very moderate, uh, you know, light activity can help. But for kids, it's got to be moderate to vigorous if you want health benefits. And it has to be moderate to vigorous if you want the educational benefits, right? The, the uh, perfusing the brain with oxygen, because after all, the brain runs on oxygen, uh, you know, reducing microvascular inflammation, having the mood control, all those things have to be, uh, are only going to happen with the right amount of moderate to vigorous physical activity. So CATCH has been shown to dramatically increase, and I can send you a link if you want as a supplement, dramatically increase the amount of moderate to vigorous physical activity that goes on because we help develop an attitude of participation, inclusion. Let's not play elimination games like dodgeball or kick or largely sedentary games like kickball. Let's make sure that the entire class is moving, everybody is included, class management techniques, you know, how to use the time that we've got. And what happens a lot of times in PE class? Okay, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down. Really? That's the first step in PE class? Sit down? We've been sitting down. You know, we're kids. We want to run. We want to move. So let's, what we do is, first step, walk the track. Okay, everybody, let's move, let's move. Let's start getting your blood flowing. We're going to walk the track. While we're walking the track, I'm going to tell you what we're going to be doing today. And, you know, every uh, thing that we do from laying out equipment, retrieving equipment, everything can be done in an active mode. And those types of uh, teaching techniques and classroom management techniques can dramatically increase the total amount of moderate to vigorous physical activity that kids are getting. Now, it would be lovely if we had more time for PE2. And there are battles going on to support that, and, and, and I support that. But in the meantime, rather than just fighting for more minutes, let's use the minutes that we've got more effectively. They're there. I mean, if all physical educators and physical activity leaders had some of these basic techniques, you could get a lot more. Uh, you can get twice as much activity with the minutes you've already got. So what? let's do that instead of fighting for twice as many minutes with the same level of intensity. Yeah. So what's the relationship? So those are the two big things that Catch has shown. What's the relationship, if any, with Catch and the research articles and the 90s, 2000s, the physical activity or physical education intervention that uh, came up after SPARK. Is there any relationship to that? Is there any relationship between CATCH and SPARK or? 
catch and then catch global health. Is that something that? Oh yeah, catch global. Well, so so the 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 catch program was started in 1988 with an NIH grant. Yeah. So it's 33 years old, 34 years old this year. For a long time, Catch was developed and researched and run out of a consortium of universities, which eventually kind of consolidated down into the University of Texas. University of Texas, as Catch continued to grow and grow and grow, got to the point where it was reaching like 800,000 kids a year, and it was just not suitable for, uh, it's been research, it's been proven, it needs to be disseminated. So uh, I was fortunate enough to be a graduate student at the University of Texas, and I collaborated with some of the principal investigators to try to figure out what do we do and the story is told in the book. And so we decided to create Catch Global Foundation as uh, a, a public charity. So essentially put Catch in the public domain and uh, build an organization that could bring Catch to schools nationwide and worldwide. And that was eight years ago in 2014. And in those eight years, we've expanded the reach of Catch from 800,000 kids to over 3 million kids per year. So Catch Global Foundation is essentially the organization which is the steward uh, and public, you know, trust for the catch program. Mm -hmm. and, and that's amazing because Does that make sense? yes, absolutely. And there is a ton of good research that I read that I know people do that never sees the light of day. They get published in a peer reviewed paper. They get talked about in conference. People talk about it in circles of academics, but then we're not trained to be the disseminators. We don't know the scale up piece. And that's why these grants like the NIH grants that sponsored Catch and Spark are so interesting because, and I know that Spark went a different way and they went in and got bought by a for-profit company, but they are right. like the dissemination of that research. They've shown people do research on it. They work for what they're supposed to be doing. The same thing as catch. But unless you're disseminating it, like there probably are really good programs out there that are just in a binder in some professor's office that could have made a huge difference in a ton of different ways. But so it's nice to hear that there I, is I, some I totally format. agree. I totally agree, Risto, and it's and it's really it's it's really sad. So many public dollars go to we, we, we see these proposals all the time. We're looking for new approaches. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that's good, but but what portion of money should go to new approaches, and what portion of money should go to developing and disseminating the things that we've already got? I mean, right. if if you get a grant to develop something and it works. And it's like, okay, grant's over. It worked. We published. We're done. Like yeah. everyone goes to different directions. Yeah. What on earth is the point of that? Yeah. Uh, by the way, just a quick note on Spark. So Spark and Catch have, have a common pedigree. Mm -hmm. Many of the original Catch investigators kind of branched off and did Spark. Spark's a great program, and, and it has a lot in common with Catch. And when we talk to a school that is, let's say, using Spark PE and, and having a Spark PE, we don't spend an ounce of energy trying to convince them to stop using Spark and start using Catch. Uh, what we do, though, is the big difference between Catch and Spark is uh, Spark is a PE program. Catch is a whole child program. Mm -hmm. So we have the comprehensive health education. We have the SEL. We have that whole child approach. Uh, if that's what you're looking for, you know, that's what Catch does. If what you're looking for is just a PE program, it's a toss-up between Catch and Spark to be yeah. real honest. Yeah. So let me ask you this as, as a kind of wrap-up question. The big issue 
almost always is money, right? And obviously the policy and if the policy is not funded, then again, the issue is money. Uh, and in your book, you say that in order to teach more health, we have to cut something. So can you talk about this concept of zero-based budgeting? Well, first of all, I, I mentioned that uh, about three pages before the end. So thank you for getting to that part. <laughs> or congratulations on your wisdom and starting at the end. I don't know which. Um, so economists have a phenomenon, identified a phenomenon which they call inheritance bias. And one way to illustrate inheritance bias is you take a group of 100 people and you at randomly give half of them $10 and the other half of them, you give them a coffee mug. Okay? And then you ask people who would like to trade their coffee mug for $10 or trade their $10 for a coffee mug. And what you find is very, very few people want to trade. Why is that? It's because we have our deep in our brainstem an inheritance bias that makes us value what we have more than what we don't have. Mm -hmm. This is also known as inertia. So many organizations have struggled with why do we keep doing the things that we've always done? Why do we keep spending our time and money in the same places? And, uh, some corporations, some forward-thinking corporations, identified a process which they call zero-based budgeting, which instead of saying, okay, here's the budget from last year, what should we change? They start from scratch and say, what should we build? So it would be more akin to, in, in the example with the coffee mug, rather than giving everybody either the coffee mug or the $10, starting with, I've got 50 $10 bills and I've got 50 coffee mugs, who, who wants which? So you're starting from scratch, not starting from something you've already got. And that's a subtle psychological difference, but apparently a very powerful psychological difference. Mm -hmm. okay. So take, and time is money. So, so take how we use our time. You know, we have over 400 hours, the average elementary school spends over 400 hours a year on English language arts, 80 hours a year on history, and less than 20 hours a year on health. But let's start from scratch. And let's, instead of saying, well, you know, are we willing to give up? You know, history seems important. Are we willing to give up time for, from history to teach more health? That's, that's a very biased way to frame the question. Let's start from scratch and say, here's how many hours we have in the school year. How many should we give to each of these? Things? That's the zero basis, right? Mm -hmm. Every, at the beginning, everything is zero. You don't have the 400 you have last year, you have zero. How are we going to build this up so that the different topics that we have have the relative amount of time, the relative amount of attention, the relative amount of money that they deserve? And so essentially it's a thought experiment, but it's a thought experiment that can help overcome this very, very substantial inheritance bias and inertia that we all operate with. And that's why it's, it's been a successful technique um, for rethinking things in, in a more creative, novel way. Yeah. And, and also that works really well when you're building a brand new school or you're starting a charter school that doesn't have a lot of restrictions. You can build it from the ground up versus a school that has a principal who's been there for 15 years and a bunch, bunch of veteran teachers who are set in their ways. And those are the issues of 
but how do we make these interventions meaningful? Because the zero-based thing is yeah. a thought experiment in a school with 15-year uh, veteran principal and staff versus going in and building a brand new school. And unfortunately, but you know, I, I think that there's there's a difference there, and it's sad that there's a difference there um, because you're right. When I'm t- when I'm trying to carve out time from you, you're not going to want to give me that time. But when we all are sitting at the table and we all have the same degree, you have a PE and a health teacher who both have master's degrees and they advocate and they say, no, that's not, no, we need equal time or this amount of time. I bet that number is very different than what we end up with when we're not sitting at the table. It's well well said. And it's interesting you mentioned the new schools and the, and the uh, charter schools. Not long after I published my book, I identified a school uh, who I'm going to include as a case study in the second edition if I get around to it. It's called Michael Fair Academy. It's up in, in um, Alberta, Canada. And they did exactly what you described. They started from scratch. And they decided from the beginning that they were going to have a culture of health. And they, were, and they took a cohort from a pre-existing school. And in just a couple years, they turned the academic performance of that cohort around uh, substantially. And again, there's no exact causal proof but mm-hmm. they built their school around health and they turned that cohort around yeah can we ignore that correlation yeah absolutely and i don't think we should uh but thank you so much for coming on uh really appreciate the time uh again i'll link to the book um it is on audible um you can also find it as an ebook for a bargain 99 cents on your website and i'll put it on there it's uh it's a relatively quick read. I also put up uh, a three-minute video of, a, of an overview of the book so people can go on and just kind of see if they, uh, if they want to dive in and if it's the right book for them. So um, thank you very much, Duncan. Appreciate it. It's been great talking to you. Great, great questions and great dialogue, Risa. Thank you so much. Thanks.